everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast where we're talking about Warren Buffett's style, Rule 1 Investing, where we try to buy things that we know are going to be worth more in 10 years. And that is pretty much the whole investing strategy <laughs> that we've been unwinding for 18 months. That's the whole shebang right there. <laughs> that, is, that is all there really is to it. I mean, phenomenal simplicity. And uh, it's not that easy to execute. It's so simple that we're on part eight of our Back to Basics series, Dad. And exactly. in part eight, we are still on moat. We're still on moat. Because out of the four, so out of the four original, we're on number two still, which we're going to finish up today. No, number two? Is it number two? The, you mean the second of the four? The second of yeah, the four. the second of the four. What we call yeah, the four so M's, meaning moat management margin of safety. Oh, look at you. Mm-hmm. Got a whole little little mnemonic device right there. Random House made me do that. <laughs> they love that stuff for books. So they said, come up with something that's, you know, all the same letter or something like that. <laughs> so. Well, Charlie Munger didn't do that. And I won't make everyone listen to it again. Maybe next time I'll play him. But he, in a BBC interview, listed four principles of investing that he and Warren Buffett follow. The first one was being capable of understanding the company. The second one was that the company have a intrinsic competitive advantage that is durable. The third one is that he would like to have management with integrity. And the last one is that it have a price that is fair. Management that has integrity and talent would be good. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Integrity and, and talent. And a price that's fair, by which he means a margin of safety price. Yes. So from that, we come up with four M's, meaning of the business, which means you're capable of understanding the business, the meaning of the business. We sort of stretched the word there. You, well, you, you, I, when I hear it, I think like, you know what it's about. You know what you it's can, about. You got it. Very you understand. Good. And then moat, the water around the castle that protects it from, from being attacked. Then management and then margin of safety. So the four M's and we're on moat, which is there's nothing about any of these that isn't critical. OK, when when you've got somebody like Charlie Munger boiling this down as aggressively as he's boiling it down, there's nothing there's nothing that you can leave out. There's nothing that isn't isn't weighed very heavily here um, in in the in the four things we're looking at. They're all of, let's say, roughly equal weight with some of them more equal than others. Um, the least equal one of all um, is probably management, since that's one Charlie says we would like to have good management. Yeah. And yeah. of course, the last time I got really burned on an investment, it was because I had management that was simply um, dishonest and unfair and without any sort of moral code that obligated them to um, to the shareholders. I, I think they they just that's played your with this your is my opinion. opinion. My, my lawyer daughter is making sure I don't get hung on this. It's my opinion that they didn't behave right. So they're all very important is bottom line. But when you're looking at a piece of real estate as a business, as, a, as an example, and, and this is very much how I want you to think about this, Danielle. You're looking at a business. I want you to think of it. Do I understand this as well as I understand that townhome 
you know, the apartment that I bought in Boulder or that, you know, you buy you buy someplace. And in that environment, the real estate has a moat and the moat is its location. So when you bought that place in Boulder, you bought it because of its location and the quality of the building and so on. That's the yeah. moat. You had you had to look at that and say, in 10 years, this will be worth more than it's worth today. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, at least in the meantime, I'll enjoy living in it. Now, don't don't waffle <laughs> on my. <laughs> You've just waffled all over my real estate example. So I want to. I, I agree that it had those things. I am not sure that Boulder real estate's going to be higher than it is today in 10 years. But that's a macroeconomic view, not, nothing to do with the actual. Yeah, location. but I remember when you bought this thing and you were all about how Google was coming in and that was going to be a big pressure on downtown and that there's no land you can build on and you can't build up because they limited the skyline and yep. there's just nowhere else to go. Right. Exactly. And there's not every real estate area is that way, but that's no. what you're looking for. Right. I think Boulder, and I've said this before on the podcast about Boulder real estate and all the reasons that it, I think it's a good investment. I mean, I'm not trying to waffle all over your real estate example, but Boulder real estate went flat for 10 years. It didn't go down the way it did in many other parts of the country, but it went flat for 10 years. Okay. But it's up now. But it's up now. Yep, it's up now. <laughs> so yes, I think if you're thinking long term, like maybe maybe you you get to pick when you're going to sell it. Maybe it's not like exactly ten years from now. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, it has those moats for sure. Yeah, yeah I agree. All right. Well, this is a perfect example. I like it even better then, because oh, tell me, Jackson Hole's the same kind of way. New York City's the same kind of way. Very limited amount of places you can build, and it does go through ten year periods. All of them do where yeah. real estate goes absolutely nowhere, right? If you have to sell, you're going to lose money. But longer than 10 years, probably those all have gone up in longer than 10 years. You know, 11, 12, 13 years, those things have all gone back up. So I think that we, we want to look at a business the same way. Now, what allows us to understand a business in that way is the concept of moat that there's a competitive advantage that this company has and it's it's built into the, the hardest thing to get to get clear about is that that competitive advantage is built into this company in a way that's very difficult to create in a new company mm. like buffett gets it into it so deep he says essentially he looks at the business and says can i take the amount of money that i would spend to acquire this entire business and create the business. Hmm, create a that's new a really one. Interesting way to think about it. Yeah, and you'll you'll hear that on Shark Tank too, right? Hmm. Kevin O'Leary, Mister Wonderful, often attacks people who are pitching their wonderful idea by saying, "Look, you're completely crazy to to put that price on this thing." Okay, yeah, maybe I might have invested in it, but not at that price because my friend. At that price, I can go out, hire somebody just like you and create the business. I don't need you. And then the person will argue, no, you don't have me. I'm special. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, always. They argue that. And Larry is like, you're not that special, buddy. You know, so this is this is absolutely fundamental to not only investing in a good business, but 
to building your own business, right? If you're going to build a house someplace, you want to have that intrinsic characteristic that get, it's going to make it worth more in 10 years than it is today. And that is called moat in our business world. So we it's had interesting. It's particularly true in technology companies. And maybe that's why I always have a hard time finding a moat in technology companies. There's a long history since basically the invention of the personal computer of first movers in technology companies utterly failing. They come up with something new and totally genius, legitimately totally genius and life changing. And the company fails because it's so hard to get it off the ground in the very beginning when you're the first one to have that idea. And then whoever like the second or third or fourth company is on that particular idea tends to be super successful because then they've learned from the mistakes of the previous companies and they can produce essentially the same product, but better. I mean, think Apple and Microsoft, both. Exactly. Right? IBM, again, I don't think IBM's had its success from inventing anything new, really, although they have huge R&D. IBM has always made its shift into the new future, right, as this huge technology change occurs by either acquiring or copying something that somebody else was struggling to make economic. Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, think of what used to be called PDA, personal device. What is it? Personal device assistant or something. Anyway, yeah. they used to be called PDAs. And um, Apple invented the Newton, which was supposed to be like life changing to everyone. And then the Palm Pilot came around, which I actually owned one of the first Palm Pilots yeah, and I used too. it. And so it excited. was totally life changing. Yep. And then the iPhone came around and that changed everything because it was so much better than everything else. But not it, to was, mention it wasn't a leap from the Palm Pilot. It, it, they actually started putting some of the like Samsung and Nokia started putting some of that Palm Pilot functionality onto their phone, um, and and I bought some of those. I mean, I was swapping out of stuff every six months to That's try right. to find something that really worked. We were all trying to figure it out because nobody had quite cracked it yet. Right, exactly. And then as soon and as the iPhone came it wasn't until the touchscreen came around that Jobs invented that it all worked yeah. in one device. Exactly, exactly. And now that and it blew everybody else out of the water. And now BlackBerry is almost dead. Yep. Nobody 10 years ago would have said BlackBerry is going to go anywhere because right. every single business uses BlackBerry. Right. Every single one. It took a completely technology world changing invention. And then it happened very quickly. So let me just sum up the warning here on technology and why you won't see us investing much in technology. You won't see Guy Spear investing much in technology or Manesh Prabhai or Warren Buffett or almost any of the guys, Prem Watsa, you name it, they don't invest in technology. And Buffett was very clear about why not. Technology moves forward by a concept called creative destruction, that a company must destroy the iPhone 5 with the iPhone 6, or someone will do it for you. Yeah, that's true. That's and, true. and so it's really hard. That means that the future of your company is getting in cars and going home every night. That your moat is just their ability to come up with this new version of the of your product that's more creative than all the people who now see what you're doing are going to try to create a better product. And that's very, very hard to do consistently over time. Well, I do think there is one moat in technology companies that is a real one, and that's a switching moat, which is it's 
painful and expensive to switch to another platform a lot of the time. And I think you've said before that that's IBM's main value proposition. That's exactly right. That's IBM's main moat. That is the durable competitive advantage that IBM has maintained for as long as they've been around is they have a tremendous relationship deep into the workings of their customer. And that, for example, you know, they're, they're in nine out of the 10 largest banks in the world. They're 90% of the healthcare companies use IBM in the back end. And no matter what other companies are doing first with first mover technology, IBM has always been able to come in, buy that new technology or recreate it. And, and it's the control of the customer. The customer is waiting for IBM to do just that, might wait five years. Okay, but that's better than trying to unload out of IBM into something else. It just is too painful. It's yeah, or maybe it's not better. Maybe it's just easier. Yeah, better, easier, whatever. But it's yeah. too hard to switch. So that, that switching mode's gigantic. So let's talk about some of these companies we listed last week um, yeah. that we had on here. We had 21st Century Fox, Disney, Polaris, Tiffany, Wells Fargo, MasterCard, Emerson, Electric, John Deere, Visa, and Salesforce. And we're going to just kind of run down and just see if the if the moats jump out. We've talked about a couple of these already, like Fox has the obvious moat of this television station, right? 21st Century Fox produces movies. Nobody cares that they do. There's no kind of brand moat in the movie business. Um, but that television station, the Fox News Network, has a gigantic moat. Um, because of its conservative position against a media that is 90% plus oriented toward liberal points of view. So that's a gigantic <laughs> position right there. And they, as a result, they control a big part of the market. All right. Well, not everyone has to agree with you on that statement. But what's the will... disagree <laughs> What in the world? Who else is out there with a conservative point of view? Oh, you didn't say that they're the only one. You said that everyone else it has a liberal point of view. And oh, that's yeah. a different thing to say, isn't it? Well, I guess it is, sort of. It is a different thing to say that I'm not going to get into. Right okay, now. well, I just, just think that if, let's say that 50% of the people roughly voted for Donald Trump and 50% of the people roughly voted for Hillary, Hillary's voters are spread across MSNBC, CNN, and anybody else that wants to come into the into the game, right? The, those are the, the you can go you can go to different places and find. I think NBC. CNN would want to disagree with you about that. Yeah, I know they would. I know they. So would, let but... me just go through the list of. Well, wait, I didn't finish votes. my I didn't finish my genius statement here. Which is I know, I know you didn't. Fox I know you didn't. is the only place for fifty percent of those people to go watch their point of view be defended. So you've got fifty percent who are getting spread out across three or four or five six different channels. And then you've got 50% who go to one channel. And that's the, the big money proposition for Fox. Okay? Now, the problem with Fox is Rupert Murdoch's two sons are not conservatives. And one of their wives is on Hillary's uh, environmental defense initiative. And so they may change Fox to be more their point of view. They already got rid of Roger Ailes, who's the main stalwart of that conservative positioning. And Fox may change. If Fox goes into the middle of the road, they are going to lose a lot of viewers. And that means a big problem for Fox. As a result, 
Fox stock is down and you can buy it pretty cheap right now because people are very concerned that as Rupert Murdoch walks away from the business, it's going to change and they're going to lose guys like Bill O'Reilly or, or uh, Megyn Kelly. And those people are going to go elsewhere um, that more support that conservative point of view. And if that happens, Fox is dead. So. And what I was saying when we talked about it last time is that I think that all and if if we assume all that is true, I'm not sure it has a moat at all. If the moat can just walk out the door like that, essentially, it's the same as the technology companies we were just talking about. Very good point. So be very skeptical about Fox's moat right there. All right. Next one. Disney. OK, hold on. Let me just run through the, the list of moats for everybody who's forgotten. Because I know I sure did. I had to switch back in my notebook. Okay, fire away. <laughs> All right, so number one is brand, which, of course, I always remember because I always say that instead of moat. Uh, number two is toll bridge, which means that they have some kind of regulatory or government protection around their business. Uh, number three is price. They're the low-cost provider. Number four is a switching moat in that it's painful or hard to change away from them. Number five is a secrets moat, which means they have patents or trade secrets that no other companies can get. Um, of course, everyone has access to a patent, but they won't be able to produce the product. Pretty good. And then you gonna... had added another one called okay. network effects. Right, which is which is just something that's been developed with the internet, um, and which what is what provides Facebook with its moat and Google with its moat is this the fact that everybody's using you and that perpetuates itself because you've got all the information. So network effect is, is definitely something new. And wouldn't um, that be the same as a switching? Yeah, it's a it's really probably a subset of the switching mode. Absolutely. And I just want to want to sort of smooth out the toll bridge mode. The toll bridge mode is a near monopoly. Um, and you pointed out that it's created by government regulation. Um, but it's also created by you you're the first guy out there who did this. Right. So, for example, if you're the first company that ever built a car, if someone wants a car, they have to go they have to go over your bridge. That's what a toll bridge moat means. That's the only way to get there. So if you want to drive 50 miles an hour instead of your horse and buggy at, at 15 miles an hour, the only way to do it is to go buy this new car thing. But the reason that we talk about toll bridge moats having regulatory uh, or government backing is because in our marketplace, which is a free market, it's very difficult to maintain a toll bridge moat without government regulation. Because as soon as somebody sees you making money, they're going to build a bridge right next to you. Yeah. That's so. I, I'm missing. I'm missing the part where, without some sort of protection like that, they have any sort of moat at all. Just because you invented the car doesn't mean you have any moat. Um, well, okay. That's a good thought. Um, let me think about that. Onward. <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone okay. right now. That's not a bad point. Okay. Um, all right. So Walt Disney, I feel like Walt Disney is, uh, and I have not looked these up in detail. So maybe you have more than me. Walt Disney, to see, I mean, it's a media company. So it seems like it'll be a lot the same analysis as the one for Fox. Yes, but, right? <laughs> In other words, everyone who has kids thinks Disney at some point. 
Yeah. Right. Because they have this tremendous brand that Walt Disney built and which has been sustained over time. And um, and that brand says, you know, family fun uh, in a in a really in a really good environment. And so, yeah, Disney, Disney is Disney is a big brand moat. You're right. It's a much stronger brand. It's probably one of the strongest brands in the world. It is one of the strongest brands in the world, for sure. And so the, the question with Disney is um, what Buffett says about a good moat applies strongly to Disney. And that is that you've got to have a moat that's big enough that an idiot can run the company because someday an idiot will. And and the the problem with Disney is that whoever's running it has to sustain this moat. Um, and the question is, can they sustain it? If they screw it up, is the moat going to sustain the Disney brand? Yeah. And so yeah. far it has. Disney's had a, you know, a mixed bag of people who've run it. And the company successfully gets rid of some of the CEOs, brings in a new CEO, and, and they reinvigorate the brand. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think Disney is a very strong brand moat. Um, that, and so here's the question. If you could buy Disney super cheap, well, I mean, will it be around in 10 years? I would say yes. Yeah. So then it's just a question of price. Okay. So that let's say that you don't care if Disney grows any. It doesn't matter if you can buy it cheap enough. It's going to be worth more in 10 years than you bought it for. And that's all you really care about. All, all right. right. I agree with that. So it's mode is brand. Yep. How about Polaris? Okay. So Polaris does what? Polaris? All I know about them is that they make snowmobiles. Oh, they also make uh, um, little vehicles for driving around the farm. Oh, yeah. They or make like those ATV sort of ATV-ish yeah. things. Okay. Yep. So they make small motorized vehicles. Yep. It's a pretty small market. There's, you know, John Deere is in it to a certain degree. So there's just a handful of companies that are in this market. Uh, Polaris obviously has a brand. But and, and if you're not sure what the mode is, if there is even is one, just go down the list. Is, is there anything that Polaris does that has a secret connected to it? No. No. Is there anything about buying a Polaris product that's a toll bridge? You can only get that product that one place. No. no. Is there a, a, a switching mode? I own Polaris and therefore I must always own Polaris. No. No. Um, do they sell it for the cheapest possible price because they have the lowest cost of production? I don't know, but probably not. Probably not. All right. So... There's the other moats. So the, all that's left really is brand moat. And, and let me just note that all these companies on this list are consumer facing companies and that you did that on purpose so that I would have some sense of who they were. Yeah. Um, and so that also indicates that, of course, for a lot of these brand is a big part of their business. Which is good because then we can kind of understand what kind of brands are really powerful and what kind yeah. are not yeah. so powerful. Brand moats are the easiest ones to get screwed up on, right? Because there's obviously big brands out there and then they go away. Mm -hmm. So these these moats, this may not be the strongest moat or in some cases it is the strongest moat. When you look at a company like Coca-Cola, it's a phenomenal brand. It overcomes so much resistance to the product. So um, Polaris, a brand moat, not super strong. Will it be around in 10 years worth more than today? Probably, who but who knows really for sure. So that's a little bit. I'm going to say they don't have a strong moat. I'm going to say you're right. 
All right. Next one is Tiffany. Tiffany. Okay. So Secrets, Tollbridge, yeah, switching. No. no. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Oh, cheap, low price. No. Uh, no. <laughs> but a heck of Super a brand. Super strong brand. Super which strong they brand. have built up over many years and massively protect and do yeah. a very good job. Tiffany, I find really interesting. It's the only sort of high priced, but not insanely high priced jeweler out there. Like when you look, when you look for jewelry, it's like, you've got the crazy ones that, um, you know, the celebrities go to like the Harry Winston's and like Lorraine, whatever, you know, just like the ones you read about in the gossip columns. Yeah. And then there's Tiffany, which is, in many cities across America and has very good products and, um, and isn't priced as high as those other places. Right. And then there's like the more lower priced jewelry chains like Zales. Yeah. But then there's Car Mont. Cartier is in that ballpark too. Aren't they? I would say Cartier is at a much higher level than Tiffany in terms of their prices. Okay. I just think of them as a watch company. I don't even know what's in there. Never oh. been in a Cartier <laughs> store. But sticking with Tiffany, very, very major brand. I mean, people love this brand. And what protects that brand? I mean, what, yeah, how I mean, they... that's my point. That's my point is they're alone in their market, essentially, yeah. Yeah. which I, I find really interesting about them. There's nobody else that's even challenged them on that sort of price point for jewelry. Yeah. And so it becomes a, a product like if you're going to get engaged you're going to go, so many people want to go to a place that will sell them the exact same diamond on the exact same setting, yep. but it's going to be in a box and have a name on it that tells your future spouse, you cared this much, that you went that extra mile and got her or him something really from a really good company. Mm, now, absolutely. all of that is just made up. It's all just advertising. And of course, the brand itself, they pick lovely stuff. You know, they, they don't make schlock. It's, it's, it, but they have to defend that brand. And so, but I, that's a very strong, strong brand. I would say it's a very strong brand. Yeah. I would say they have a brand moat. Yep, big brand moat. I mode. think for some other jewelry company to try to come into that space of that like upper echelon, but not crazy is, uh, I mean, nobody's done it. And Nobody's they've built that brand over, I don't know how long they've been around, yeah, 100 at least 100 years. years. Yeah, exactly. And that blue box is utterly iconic. So they've done a very good job. Very true. Which means if we can buy it at a great price, it's likely to be worth more in 10 years than it is today. Okay, yeah. very good. Next one, Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo, we talked about a bit already. Um, I think we said it had a price moat. Wells no? Fargo... No, I don't think they really uh, try to compete on that basis so much. It's they're they're very well run, and this is a company that uh, for many years had the best management of any major bank. Um, and recently, they've had this the stuffing knocked out of them by uh, revelations in the marketplace. But Wells Fargo is another brand moat, um, and a lot of times, brand moat companies you can tell because they've got a store on every corner. You know, they're really looking to uh, be available to you as much as possible. And I don't know, they may, I'm not sure why we were talking about them having a price moat right off the top of my head in the sense that they're the low cost, the, the low cost producer of banking services. 
Well, it could have just been my guess. I have it written down next to Wells Fargo. It could have been me guessing that before we discussed it. I can't remember. But I was thinking that because, to me, banks, yes, they technically have brands and names, but it means absolutely nothing to me. So I don't go to Wells Fargo over Chase or Chase over Wells Fargo because their brand indicates to me anything. Yeah. I do it because one's more local or more convenient or whatever, but their their products are essentially the same. Their products me. are essentially the same. As like as like your average, you know, getting a checking account kind of banking. Right. And they're they're basically competing on a lot of different things in the brand world, right? Which is customer service and and how you see their advertising and that's my local big it's my big bank, but it's really a local bank. You know, yeah. you can see how they compete. Um, but what Wells Fargo also has that good banks develop is a kind of a switching mode that they want you anchored in with all kinds of Wells Fargo product. Hmm. They want to they want to oh, put yes. the mortgage think, on your I house. I think that's what we talked about last time, yeah. Dad. Yeah. So they yeah. want they want the mortgage on your house. They want your credit cards. They want your your car payment. They want you to be locked in there so that it's going to be a pain in the butt to to shift over to Bank of America or you're going to need a really big reason to do it, right? Because it's just a pain to move your accounts. Yeah. And and they don't want to give you that reason. So they're going to keep their customer service high. They're going to keep their costs low and compete across the board on all those things and just not give you the reason. So that yeah, makes sense. Switch mode. Yeah. And that obviously got Wells Fargo <laughs> into trouble recently. Yep. Now, it doesn't have anything near the switch mode of an IBM or an Apple. <clears throat> it's not that hard to move your bank accounts. But if they can get your accounts locked up in many different ways where you feel like you're going to get a better car loan because you're a Wells Fargo uh, is your bank, then they're going to have you there for a long, long time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, switch absolutely. mode. So <clears throat> next one is MasterCard. Can we do MasterCard and Visa together? Or do yeah. we need to talk about them separately? For sure. MasterCard and Visa together. Okay. What do you think this one is? Okay. My guess is that together, because to me, they're basically the same. I have no idea what the difference between Visa and MasterCard are. Right. And also when you get a credit card, often they don't even really tell you. It's just like, oh, it's Visa or MasterCard, whatever. Right. Um, so together, I see them as kind of having a toll bridge moat. Very good. Oh, go me. Very good. That is because, very good. Because I think they're pretty protected. They are protected by a kind of a network situation, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, if it's a network thing, then it's not toll bridge. It's switching. Well, network can be for toll bridge as well. I mean, that's okay, another phenomenon. Give us phenomenon. your thoughts. Give us your thoughts. MasterCard and Visa are the only game in town for uh, credit cards in many, many businesses around yeah. the country. And virtually every business, almost without exception, there's always a few who don't take any credit card, but virtually all businesses take credit cards. And if they take a credit card, they're going to take Visa and MasterCard both. Right, that just, I actually know nothing about how credit cards work for merchants. Right. But yes, that's my experience as a consumer. Yep. And so to compare this to another credit card company, we compare it to American Express, Visa and MasterCard are kind of a toll bridge moat, which is very strong. And American Express is more of a brand moat, which is I'm flashing this American Express card. So I obviously have better credit than most people. 
That's why I have the American Express card because I can charge virtually an unlimited amount of money on it at any time. And so it's a status symbol, American Express, what's in your wallet, right? And so MasterCard and Visa are competing uh, not for status. Nobody thinks a MasterCard or a Visa card has any status. And you can see MasterCard and Visa try to come out with a black card now lately to try to get status. Ooh, yeah. But nobody cares. So those guys are competing for the middle market and the lower end of the market. And then you have Capital One who comes in at the subprime level. And years ago, MasterCard and Visa got together and sued Capital One for fraud in the inducement to its securities claiming they couldn't possibly be as successful as they are doing subprime borrowers. But Capital One, in fact, is really good at picking the right subprimes to mm. give credit cards to. So Visa and MasterCard occupy a niche in the middle, which is where most everybody is. And you always have to have a Visa or MasterCard in your wallet or you're going to go to places that won't take an American Express yeah. and you're in trouble. Exactly. That's why I see it as a toll bridge. You kind of have to have one in order to use credit. Exactly. That's a I very mean, you don't powerful technically mode. have to. You could have an American Express, but you're exactly right. You will end up somewhere that doesn't take American Express or doesn't take Discover. Yep. And that's why these are really great companies and they're very difficult mode to crack. Um, there are things on the horizon like um, uh, this uh, Bitcoin kind of a structure. I, I forget what they call it. The, the uh, software that runs Bitcoin, which allows you to get around banking even. So there's there's stuff that I don't even understand that's, that's potentially yeah, out there. But I mean, that's a good point. I do think that if for Visa and MasterCard to go down, the whole credit card construct would have to go down. Right, the whole credit card Which is card totally construct. possible. Yep. I could totally see that happening in the next 50 years. But you could probably watch it come for five years yeah. and exit. Because yeah. yeah. yep. it's going to take people a while to switch over. Ah, oh, switching also. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's another one. Um, I suppose it's a switch mode, but there's nothing to switch to, really. Yeah. So, but and I don't think anybody really care. I mean, you want to give me a new credit card? Fine. I don't care. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, those guys have this nice toll bridge mode. And if you can buy them cheap, um, much very likely to be worth much more in the future. Mm -hmm. OK, next one. OK. Emerson Electric. So this one, I didn't really know what they did. I looked up their website and found it so ambiguous <laughs> about what they do that um, I can't really tell you what kind of moat they have. I mean, they show their brands on there, so clearly they make a lot of different stuff. But um, it was for me, it was too hard, Dad, in capitals. Too hard. Well, one of the ways you can find um, a real quick summary of what a company is doing for all public companies is to go to the wiki page for that oh. company. No, I did not do that. Yeah, and, and usually there'll be a little little box on the side of the page that says what their products are and kind of give you an idea of what the business is. And, you know, you look at Emerson Electric and it goes process control systems, climate technologies, power technologies, industrial automation, electric motors, storage systems, network power, professional tools. And all of a sudden you've got quite a lot of hard things. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Right? That's a lot of stuff. So this is a conglomerate kind of oriented. I don't even know if they could tell you what they're oriented around, how they make a decision about what to buy or what not to buy, right? Um, they, they say that they've got five platforms, process management, industrial automation, 
network power, climate technology, and commercial residential solutions. But that's that's how they're structuring their business. But this is one of the a really good example of something that might be pretty difficult to really understand what they do and the value of their businesses. So this is when professional investors who have big research departments, they can they can break this thing up and have their research teams figure it out and mm. come up with a piece by piece version of what this is all worth. But for me, this is way too hard. I just Oh, don't it's also have, too hard for yeah, you. I don't have a sense of it at all. So Dad, it's too hard for both of us. <laughs> it's too hard for me, too hard for you. Good. Move on. And, and, okay. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Next John one. Deere. John, John Deere. John Deere. All right. Now, now that's talking. an obvious brand, right? Obvious brand. Obvious brand moat. Okay. Um, I don't know. if I mean, if it has a moat, I would say it's a brand. Does it really have a moat, though? I mean, if if I started an amazing tractor company, couldn't I compete very well with John Deere? Caterpillar competes with John Deere. Caterpillar does. Um, so does Agco. Agco comes out of India. And they compete with John Deere. Uh, there's other companies. There's the Korean companies and so on. So they have competition. They're not a toll bridge by any means. But let me tell you how branded this moat really is. Okay. You can go to farmers all over the country in America who wear a John Deere hat, who proudly have John Deere stickers on their cars, who wear John Deere t-shirts, who are just, you know, what I do is I drive a green tractor. I mean, there's songs about big green tractors. It's an iconic brand. It's one of the most powerful brands in the whole world. And what it says is, and it's a, it's a high-end brand. It's a Tiffany solution to the farming problem. Oh, really? So they don't compete on price? No, they don't compete on price. If you're going to do John Deere, you're going to pay more. But your your argument, since farming is, is very... get more. You're going to get more. You're going to get a better quality product that lasts longer, has better service and has a better resale value than any other tractor in the world. And that's, Did you just say that John Deere is the Tiffany of tractors? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't let that one go without calling it. <laughs> let me tell you something. That's my new favorite PBT quote. <laughs> there are young women out there who would be more impressed by you driving up in a John Deere tractor than you showing up with a blue box. I'll tell you that right now. And good for them. So, yeah, this is a, a very, very big and iconic brand um, such that farmers all over the world would love the idea that they could be wealthy enough someday to have a John Deere tractor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Fabulous brand. Um, Maybe it's the Mercedes of tractors. Okay, the Mercedes of tractors. Maybe it's the Cadillac of tractors, to use an American. Now, to, to defend that brand, they have to stay on top of technology. So these guys do push the boundaries of technology right near right now. John Deere tractors is leading the parade in GPS driven automated tractors with nobody driving them. Oh, yes. That pull that pull, you know, implements that are 120 feet wide. And there's nobody driving the tractor. It can find, you know, the irrigation nozzles and move around them. It can do all this amazing stuff. And there, there's a lot of the future of, of the farm. Also, John Deere defends its moat with phenomenal leasing programs that allow friends of mine who grow 30,000 acres of cotton down here in Georgia 
to have new equipment on their farm every year, brand new equipment. Um, hmm. John Deere puts the equipment in, services it with helicopters, flying in crews if they need it. And these guys don't ever miss a beat. And they're, they're first guys in, first guys out with their crop. And that is worth it to them to uh, be away from the headaches of used equipment. So John Deere is definitely the Mercedes or the, the Tiffany of its world. Yep. Cool. Brand, pretty obvious Go too. John pretty not, not hard to understand that business. So we got one more. The last one is Salesforce. Yep, Salesforce. Um, this is a new entry. Uh, this is a, I almost kind of like could call it a technology company that effectively came in with software um, and automated the uh, CRM industry, the, the, you know, the customer service record, the, the record of your customer um, as a salesman that you used to keep in paper and put in a file. And now they innovated to become a kind of a standalone chunk of software that then they could have value-added resellers come in and, and, uh, and work that software into a custom solution for any company out there. And they started off with small to medium-sized companies and gradually they're sort of such a strong brand name, they're taking over a lot of stuff. But of course, they, they don't have any real secrets, but they have a tremendous pile of technology that they've developed over time that's very difficult to reproduce and which gives them a very strong brand moat. So it's kind of, and then when you get in there, you're in a switch moat situation. You are in deep Yeah, that was my Salesforce. guess. I was guessing a switching moat, but it's a great point also about their technology. So essentially their secrets of how they run their company and how they set up their um, their whole system that you buy into. Yep, so this is a multi-moat company which, and you can see by its growth and, and how it's come into to, um, markets that are dominated by huge companies. I mean, absolutely dominated by great big companies. You know, SAP, um, IBM, Microsoft was in some of these aspects. And they came in here and just kicked everybody's butt. And they did that because they built up this huge dominant uh, software platform and then got people to come in and write software on their platform. And that created a switching moat. They did it at a wonderful price point, far cheaper than you could do it with any of these others well-established companies. So look at how they busted in there. They came in with a price moat. They came in with a secrets moat. They came in with a switching moat. And ultimately, they built a branded moat. Um, about the only thing they don't have is a toll bridge moat. And if you let them keep going the way they're going, they might end up with that. So <laughs> a very powerful moat company right there. Yeah. Okay, cool. I think that we should move on from moat. Yeah, what do I you think, think Dad? Can we graduate to number three? Yep, I think we can graduate to number three. And so let's do that next time. And uh, by the way, if you guys are interested in, in uh, getting hands on with this, we do have a class that we do for three days that I teach out in Atlanta um, once a month. And um, if you guys will go to the website invested.com. <laughs> <laughs> no, Dad investedpodcast.com <laughs> investedpodcast.com um, and click the Maybe button for the one workshop. day in like 10 years you'll remember I our might remember it. you just click click the button and then it'll take you over where you can get a scholarship and we'll be happy to have you there we don't sell anything at the workshop you can check that out on the net and uh, we just teach so looking forward to seeing you there one of these days and until then I guess it's time to go play till next week <laughs> Thanks, Danielle. Investedpodcast.com, Dad. Investedpodcast.com. There we go. Thanks, everybody. See you Bye. Next time. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. 
If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.